The following content has been provided by RWTH Aachen University. One more word of warning about correlation and causation. Um, I just wanted to uh, drive this home. We talked about this last week already, but it's, it's important enough um, to warrant a second exposure, so to say. Um, correlation does not imply, uh, correlation does not imply causation. Uh, this is adapted from a tweet uh, that, that what we found online. It basically shows you in the green um, bars Internet Explorer market share dropping significantly from 2006 to 2011 and also the number of murders in the US also dropping significantly from 2006 to 2011. So get this into the hands of an eager journalist and you know you can see the headline, right? <laughs> but you've taken current topics now so you know that he's not Enable, this doesn't enable him actually. You know, this is not the right backing to claim that IE kills people. You know, <laughs> this, this is not what's in here. But it, uh, well, Mike off, yes, it does, but uh, no. Um, just, you know, the moral of the story is you can basically slap arbitrary data with the same trend over each other and suggest a, co you know, a correlation, but it doesn't mean that the correlation is sensible or whether there is a causal effect or not. Right? Just to give you an example here, we can also um, you know, just expand this a little and we'll see, oh, look at that. You know, Internet Explorer market share actually went up from 2003 to 2006 and then dropped, but that's not really reflected in the murder rates. Right? So, I mean, obviously there's no connection here and you could show it by just looking at the data a little more closely or you know, just basically you can take any two sets of data. If they have the same trend, you can put them over each other and say, oh, look, you know, there's something. Now, so how do we get from correlation to causation? This is exactly what that third kind of experimental, uh, the, the experimental sort of branch of empirical research does. Um, it tries to show that actually A has an effect on B, not just that they're correlated. So we're going to dive into experimental research now a little more. And, um, this is sort of some of the more uh, maybe challenging material because we're going to talk a little bit uh, about statistics. We're going to talk a little bit about um, psychological test methods, etc. Um, so a lot of words that you're not you know that familiar with uh, when you when you come out of computer science, maybe. Um, but it's important because there's not much value if you do research. I mean, if you do engineering, if you go to industry, you build a system, it sells well, nobody asks, you know, nobody asks for a formal proof that it's great, right? If it sells, that's proof enough. But in science, we're more interested in advancing, you know, the knowledge of humanity about something. In this case, the interaction of people with technology, which is, a, I think, a pretty important thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this job. Um, so for experimental research, we have the tools in order to really show, you know, to, to dissect what's happening and to really show A is actually influencing B so everybody in the world can pick that up and learn from this and build on it. So the purpose is to infer these cause and effect relationships. Um, we do this by, um, first of all, holding everything down. So most of the stuff that we study, most aspects of is not going to move, right? Um, and then we take one thing and we wiggle that. We change it. That's the controlled, uh, the independent variable. That's controlling the independent variable. It's independent, not because it can do whatever it wants. No, we actually tell it exactly how to change. But it's independent in, in the sense that the other things that are being influenced are depending on it. So we wiggle that independent variable. We control it in our study with two different values, for example. 
um, maybe you know the, the the vulture keyword versus its closest competitor on the market. You know those will be the two values, and the variable there would actually be the type of keyword input method that you use. So we change that, and then we observe how that influences other things, dependent variables. For example, how long it takes people to type a sentence. I know that you all have a math background, and variable to us, and, and the programming background to us, variable immediately suggests you know like some integer or something. That's not usually what it is. In many cases, this variable is the type of input method, for example, the, the system that's used, a system A or system B. So it can be very um, sort of classifying in, rather than a, a continuous value. We'll talk about these different values in a, in a minute, but just be aware that this is not always just a simple number, although it's called variable. So um, just real quick here, and this will be easy because you all know this, uh, what was between group again versus within group? Yes, you want to tell me. Yes. Okay, uh, when within group we, uh, we conduct two experiments and all the people in the group will do this experiment. Okay. When between group we have two groups and two experiments A will be done by one group, experiment B by the other group. Exactly. That's the difference. And um, benefits and drawbacks... Real briefly, what's the, what's the great thing about doing it one way or the other? Learning effect, uh, which mm -hmm. you can avoid uh, between groups, mm -hmm. because within group, the effect of first experiment can be carried forward on the second experiment. Exactly. So that's the benefit of splitting up, and everybody only does one or the other uh, version of the experiment. Yes. Um, yes? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm, exactly. So the difference in intelligence, and you can tell that you remember this because you're always sitting very near the window because that was the smart group of people, right? When we talked about this in DIS1, all the smart sitting on this side, all the dumb people sitting on this side, and we do an experiment, split people this way, and then you will perform so much better than you guys, and it's just because these are the smart people, right? So she's looking at me like... <laughs> All right, so this is the problem, of course. Like you can have independent variables, uh, or, or you can have individual differences influence your data. Um, there is something re highly related to that drawback, uh, also, that is not so great about doing it between groups. You guys remember? It's a statistical issue. Uh, you need more people. Exactly. You need more people. Like to get the same level of confidence, you need twice the number of folks. Right? Or if you actually have more than two conditions for your, un, for your independent variable, if it's like three or four or five different things you're testing, then you need three or more or four or five times the number of people to get to the same n, the same number of users for each experiment. All right, good. Um, so we're now going to look at uh, experimental research in HCI. Uh, we're going to illustrate this through text entry as an example. And uh, you can find more about this in this other book that I, that I suggested last week, Research Methods for the Behavioral Sciences. Um, this is uh, from 2015, the latest edition, you know, brand spanking new. We had to actually sort of you know, poke through the online version of it to, find, to make sure that the, the stuff is still there. It's still there. Did you find it? The online version didn't exist. Okay, awesome. So we're really hoping that they didn't remove this in the latest edition because we are still trying to get our hands on it ourselves. Um, it should be on its way, I think. We'll probably have it next week. Um, anyway, the last edition talked about this as well. So um, just to explain this again, um, when you are manipulating variables, uh, 
uh, we call these ma manipulations treatments. So for example, uh, take the, um, the, the version of the text editing or text input method that you use. Um, that could be a variable that you manipulate. Um, it's an independent variable, so you are taking control of it, you're controlling it with two different treatments. And um, this is sort of what, what you can control. Other variables, you try to not have influenced this, so you're trying to keep them all um, unchanged, constant. Then, for these two treatments, these could be you know, uh, keyboard A, keyboard B, and you do lots of measurements. You know, more than one, because if you only do one on each side, it's you know, pretty much random what you get. Um, you do lots of measurements. And once you've done that, you compare the results of that. Right? You're done with your measurements, you, find the, you compare, okay, how did these two treatments uh, compare to each other over these um, many results, not just over individual ones. So this is sort of your setup of your controlled experiment. We've already seen uh, a couple basic elements of any experimental study that you do. Right? So empirical science in HCI, experimental studies, um, you know, A-B comparisons, for example, or more than just A and B. Um, we manipulate, which means we change the value of the independent variable to create what's called treatment conditions. It's a weird way, treatment, but that's, that's what it's called in, in psychology and in, in, in anything that looks at, at uh, experiments, really. Um, we then measure the value of the dependent variable in each treatment condition. We do this many times. And then we compare the score of one treatment condition with another. If there is a difference between those treatments, then that would be an evidence of causality because we held everything down and only changed this one thing. So if now the other thing changes, and it does that many times in similar ways over all our different um, you know, measurements that we did, there must be something going on. So this is the evidence of causality. Um, I, this is probably obvious, but you can never 100% prove that there is a causality, right? Because it could still be a random effect that is just really, 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 you know, by chance hitting you exactly this way. That's why we try to make n as large as possible, run as many measurements as possible, just to minimize the likelihood that this was a random effect that we saw. And in fact, that's exactly the kind of measurement that we're going to use later that says, you know, how likely is it that what we observed was just a random thing? You know, and if that's very unlikely, that means it's very likely that the effect is actually still there, uh, that is actually there that we're claiming, the causal effect. Variables. There is the independent variable that you manipulate. Right? That's the one that you're manipulating here, A and B. And then uh, what you measure are the dependent variables. So you're not directly measuring A and B, you're measuring the effect of them because you, know, you want to see whether uh, the variable that you changed up here, the independent one, influences the dependent one that you are measuring here. All the others are extraneous variables that you don't really want to influence your results. Unfortunately, and this is where real life comes in, oftentimes you get effects from outside that you aren't able to keep outside your experiment. And this would be what's called confounding variables. Confounding variables mess with your experiment. Right? They influence what's going on without you really wanting that to be there. So a confounding variable is an extraneous variable that, that's not part of our setup that still changes things systematically. If it's just random, we don't care. Right? If, it, if this was a completely random balanced effect and it hits both 
um, treatments here equally, that's fine, right? But if it's something that for some reason or other, like you know, the seating arrangement, smart people sit near the window, right? If that influences things systematically, then we have a confounding variable that we weren't aware of. So we're really testing something uh, without actually knowing that this is the kind of you know, treatment that we're creating. And those confounding variables then create an alternative explanation of the relation between those two variables, right? The independent variable, the one that we're manipulating, and the dependent variable or variables that we're measuring. So you want to get rid of confounding variables, obviously. And we'll talk about a couple examples of this. Okay. Let's continue the discussion um, of how to set up those experiments and what those variables are doing. Uh, one thing I was mentioning is that there's many different ways in which you can both measure your independent variable that you're, that you're controlling, you identify this. It could be a continuous value that you're changing, or it could be a totally different system that you're using as, as A versus B versus C. Um, and also, of course, the variables that you are um, measuring as a result, the, the dependent variables, can also be of different kinds. And I want to talk about what these are. Um, and you will probably remember some of this from your st statistics classes. Um, there's, first of all, um, the nominal scale. What this means is that um, you have a discrete uh, scale that is qualitative, and uh, the differences are categorical, and you can ignore the order. A good example would be what we just talked about, the example of input techniques, like using one keyboard versus the other keyboard. This is obviously a nominal scale because we, only, we don't have a keyboard that's halfway in between, so it's discrete. Um, this also, the differences are qualitative. This keyword A versus keyword B, you can't see this is more or less than the other one. Um, the differences are categorical, and they are, there's no order right, of putting those into like this. It's not like keyword A is, is 17, and keyword B is 70.5 or something. So input techniques, mouse versus touchscreen, or keyboard A versus keyboard B. Or um, this is an independent variable, but also, um, for example, distinguishing did the user make a mistake or not? If that's a measurement you do, that would also be a nominal measurement because it doesn't have, you know, there isn't such a thing as half an error, right? Um, and making a mistake or not is not something um, that is ordered naturally on any scale. Okay, so those are nominal scales. Those come up a lot, um, especially, I would say, on the independent variable side because you're often comparing two different versions of an input technique that you might be looking at, for example. And then we have ordinal scales. Ordinal scales are ordered, so we now have a sequential ranking, um, but we're still not looking at the magnitude of differences. What that means is we, we don't have a good sense of how big the distance between these, these um, different variable values is, but we can order them. An example would be the size of keyboard buttons. You could say, well, I can turn the size of keyboard buttons into a, um, something where I can measure the distance because it's like square millimeters. But if you're just comparing different values, then you're not providing that measurement. And it's not clear whether the actual square millimeter area is actually the value that you're interested in. Or um, a one of our favorites is the Likert or Likert scale. Um, you'll find that half of the people in Kite call it Likert, the other half calls it Likert. Um, 
And these answers that uh, you've heard of um, in DIS-1, right, Likert scales, you know, five-point uh, answers, like uh, completely agree, completely disagree, and the things in between. Um, these are also on an ordinal scale, um, meaning that they are, as a dependent variable, often measured. And you can sort them. You can sequentially rank them. But it's not clear, like, what's the distance between I mostly agree and I completely agree, right? You can't measure that in any sense. Um, then there are interval scales. This is where it gets more and more, you know, nicer in terms of mathematical properties, right? You've got stronger connections here. These are sequentially organized categories where all the categories have the same size. So you can determine at least relative distances. Um, and then finally, we get to the thing uh, which we naturally sort of most mathematically uh, associate with a variable, an interval scale in which 0 actually represents complete absence, which means you can now also determine absolute distances. So a good example would be task completion time in seconds. If you measure how long it takes somebody to do something, you know, zero seconds is obviously sort of your, your origin, point of origin in this system. And if somebody takes 1.3 seconds and the second person takes 2.6 seconds, you can say he took exactly twice as long. That's a statement that makes perfect sense, right? That measurement is, is useful. Um, you wouldn't have that if there was no zero point that represents a complete sort of um, um, point of origin for a system, in which case you wouldn't end up with an interval scale. Um, so an example that might help uh, with, with interval scales is if you think about like normal ambient temperatures. Right? You can compare things in temperature, but referring back to absolute zero is kind of not very useful for, for normal things. Uh, you could do it theoretic in theory, but it probably wouldn't be very meaningful for your, for your study. OK, um, another example would be um, not whether somebody made a mistake or not, or an error, but actually the error rate in percent. You know, people do, I don't know, 57 times they, they have to do something, and they make a mistake in like 3.5% of all cases. Yeah. In typing, 3.5% of all uh, letters that they type, they make a mistake. That's meaningful. Again, zero is a meaningful point of origin here, too, and that's error-free. And you can compare. You can say, like, oh, we improved accuracy by 20%. That's something you could actually derive if you had these measurements. Whereas, you know, we improved um, the, uh, you know, how, how much people uh, agreed with the system by 20%. That's meaningless because they answered on a Likert scale that doesn't give you that kind of comparison, that kind of measurement. Okay, so don't make the mistake saying, thinking, oh, it's a five-point scale, Likert scale, so it goes for like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and I can measure distances like three to five is just the same as like one to three. No, that's not meaningful, right, because we're just ordering them in, uh, in a ranking, but we're not providing a metric to measure distances between the different results. That should actually be pretty, uh, you know, you guys with a technical background, you, you have this stuff for breakfast, right? This is the stuff that challenges people who don't have that technical um, background, who haven't suffered through linear algebra and analysis and all these wonderful things in your, in your youth. Yes? So the ratio scale is actually similar to interval scale, just we are measuring the distances with respect to zero. Yes. So in the ratio scale, you can actually talk about absolute distances because you have a point of origin that you can refer to. Whereas in the interval scale, you can only talk about relative distances between things. Yeah. Um, now, one hint here for the, for the curious, 
Um, I said up here that the liquor scale um, actually is just an ordinal scale. Um, and you can actually treat, as, uh, treat it as um, <coughs> ordinal, which we say here strictly you know, according to the definition. Um, there's also a way to treat this as interval data. While we, I just said like, it doesn't make sense to say 3 to 5 is the same as 1 to 3, when we actually look at results from Likert scale questionnaires over the last 50 years, um, we can actually see that there is a meaningful way to interpret it as an interval. But that's not something that the definition of a Likert scale gives you per se. It's just something that if you look at a lot, a lot uh, of studies that use Likert scales to measure things and then compare these findings to what else was, for example, changed in those systems, we can actually start seeing that there is a way to interpret them as interval. So some people do this. Um, it's not strictly in the definition, right? So since we're here trying to mostly understand what is inherent in the measurement, is it you know, interval or, or is it just um, ordinal or is it ratio, um, Likert scales would not be considered an interval scale. Now, um, extraneous variables, what do you do with them? You've got a couple options. If you have um, a, an extraneous variable, you could just say, well, um, I'm just going to include it as an independent variable. That's the solution, right? You could say, okay, I'm going to control it. I'm going to take it into my box, right, and, and vary it along with this other variable that I have. Let's say, I don't know, um, we're doing this you know, text input keyboard study, and there is this you know, feeling that the people towards the light here are smarter, right? So I could just say, okay, I'm going to include that as an independent variable as, you know, are you sitting near the light or are you sitting away from the light? So then I could say, well, by changing the seating order, I would mix these things up and I would actually control that. That's always the way to do it, to control it, to use it as an additional individual, sorry, independent variable, but it increases the number of conditions you have to run. And it does that by multiplying you know, between each individual uh, independent variable. If one variable has two treatment conditions, the other one has two, now you're running four different treatment conditions, which means you need four times the number of users to get to the same statistical significance in your tests. You can also uh, leave them as random. When you leave them as random, that is actually uh, reflecting the variation that you'd see in natural use. For example, let's say um, we have a hunch that age of the users influences our measurements. I could now run the experiment twice with you know, young people, elderly, or I could run it you know, with people in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. I could go crazy with this, right? control it in all kinds of ways. But if I just say, whatever, I'm going to take people as they come and I'm going to just use people from all kinds of age, uh, it means that we actually reflect what's happening in natural use, where people from all age groups might be picking up that interface. So that gives us actual, actually better external validity. External validity means it's something that once I've proven it for my experiment here, other people can apply it more easily to their setting as well. If, on the other hand, I say I want to control it, um, I could say, OK, I don't want age to influence my results. So I'm just going to study it with people in their 20s, you know, just people like you students. Um, that will give me a more homogeneous group. So age is now removed as a factor that can mess with my results. Um, and the confidence that I'm going to get 
uh, to actually infer causality in my findings is going to go up. So internally, my results are now becoming more valid. I'm probably going to get tighter findings, better you know, um, confidence uh, rankings in my results than I would get with a broadly varied age group, assuming age has an influence of some kind. But the problem, of course, is I've now proven it for 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds. I've not shown it for any other age group. So external validity is going down. Right? If you pick up that study and it says, our subjects were computer science students aged 20 to 25, you're like, well, that's great, but you are studying you know, a system that was supposed to help the elderly across the street or something, so eh, not very valid for my target group where I want to use your research. Um, by the way, do you know who the best study group of people in the world is? Psychology students, yes. Psychology students, even worse than you know, here in computer science with HA, psychology students get drawn into all kinds of experiments all the time because all the labs, all the professors are running their research and they need subjects all the time, so they always recruit their students. And so we know a lot about exactly how psychology students work, right? everything. Unfortunately, it's all only about psychology students, so all these other people in the world are not studied as well. Anyway, um, so something to look out for. Right? Look at, whenever you pick up a study, look at who were the subjects. If it, if it was a study with people doing stuff, look at who did they study. Does it apply to your target setting where you want to use that research or not? Um, so to explain this internal validity, external validity a little more, uh, it's pretty obvious. Right? Internal validity means uh, my findings actually produce a single unambiguous explanation for the relationship between those two variables. This is being threatened by confounding variables, of course, um, but also by experimenter bias. Right? If I like one system much more than the other one, and I'm maybe you know, making that clear in my um, dealing with my testers, then they might actually, um, that might actually bias the results. Learning effects, something you know from DIS1. Right? I learned something in the first um, treatment that I'm now using in the second treatment, so I'm faster using the other system simply because I learned something about the task. Um, that only happens in, within group studies, of course. Uh, the Hawthorne effect, which means that just being observed uh, causes the changes, right? Just by looking somebody over the shoulder, putting them into an experimental setting, they behave differently than they would normally. So those are all things that threaten internal validity. External validity means if I take the results and I want to generalize them to other people but also other settings, other environments, other times, other measurements or other characteristics than those that are used in the study. Um, if a study you know, result can do that well, it has high external validity. So the example I gave of the age group and you know, the occupation of people, like you know, students in their 20s, is one example um, that you know, limits your external validity. But also, if all the studies were done in you know, a dark room at uh, 30 degrees, right? Um, that will change how people behave from you know, their normal everyday settings. So again, knowing whether the setting was, was particular uh, and limiting maybe or, or the people selected, um, those are all things that, that threaten uh, external validity. So um, what we get from external, uh, what can threaten external validity is if uh, we cannot generalize across participants or if multiple uh, independent variables interfere. That's also a messy thing to tease apart, right? If you're looking to, okay, I changed these two things and I'm seeing something, but it's not clearly depending on one or the other. We get these weird effects. 
Maybe if you change one variable, you get a clear effect to change the other one. But if you change both, then maybe something cancels itself out because of the situation that users are put into. So this is always a trade-off, right, between external and internal validity. You've got to strike an appropriate balance depending on what the goal of your research really is. But what we always want to do is sort of control somehow, you know, make sure that these extraneous variables aren't messing with us. Um, so what you typically do with extraneous variables is you hold them constant. Um, this will be an example of you know, picking all participants to be from the same age group or from the same gender um, with the effects on external validity that I talked about. You can also um, match the same number of participants with the same extraneous variable. For example, I could say if I want to avoid any gender effects, you know, male versus female, I could either just take males, but then I have a result that won't apply maybe to the female audience, or I could take both groups that are studying it to be equally mixed male and female. Right? Um, the other way to do this would be to assign people randomly to treatment conditions. Um, so for example, I could also just say, I'm not going to care about male or female. I've got such a big study. I'm running a survey with like 2,000 people. I'm just going to take them as they come, and it's probably going to balance itself out. Um, but assignment of participants to treatments is not the only thing that you can and maybe should randomize. There's also, for example, time slot. If, for example, you run uh, two studies that take three hours each, and one is uh, you know, your text entry system, and the other one is the competitor, and you run your studies always in the morning before lunch, and the other one in the you know, uh, Mensa-induced post-lunch coma from like <laughs> one to three, then performance is probably going to be different, and it's not because of the systems. Right? So be careful of, of those kinds of effects. All right, so back to here. We can now fill this up a little more. We know we are manipulating an independent variable, um, and we're measuring dependent variables. We're trying to avoid confounding variables to influence that. We do the comparison in here, um, and this is sort of our uh, thing we do to avoid extraneous variables to influence us. We're holding them constant. We're matching them between the two uh, treatments, or we're randomly assigning people across those treatments. And we understand that those both the independent and the dependent variables can be of different scale, nominal, categorical, interval, or ratio scale. This is all very theoretical, so let's take a look at text entry research. Let's say you've designed a new keyboard layout. You want to know how good it is. Uh, your strategy would be to compare it with existing techniques, you know, just like I uh, hinted at earlier. So the basic research questions you might have are, how fast is it? Um, how accurate is it? How satisfied are people? Those are actually um, almost universally, in like, I don't know, 80% or so of all the studies that, that you typically see in Kai papers, um, this will be what people look at. How fast is this new interaction techniques? How many, uh, technique, how many mistakes are people making? And how satisfied are they with the system? Um, and then let's, let's think about what would be our independent variables, dependent variables, and the extraneous variables, and potentially confounding ones. Um, so what do you think? What's the independent variable here? Keyboard, keyboard, type. keyboard type, right? Keyboard layout, obviously. Um, what are some dependent variables that we'll be looking at? Speed, Absolutely, speed, accuracy, and yeah, user satisfaction, right? Yeah, how happy people are with it, obviously. Um, a little difficult. Uh, what are some extraneous variables? that you would want to control? 
Okay, so they have him type the same text. Other things? Uh, right left handed. Uh huh. Right handed, left handed. Yeah, sure. Depending on the Apple system. Mm hmm. Okay, good. Other things? Is there a speed limit or no limit? Okay, if you're as nervous. I want to say that, but maybe also about male female. Male female? Okay, yeah. Age, yeah, exactly. So we got a lot of things that can go in there. And um, so those would be all things that we should think about and try to either control and hold constant or mix up between those you know, two treatments so that they don't have a systematic influence. Don't make all the young kids you know, use one system and all the older ones use the other one. Um, and just to give you an example of for things that could be confounding, uh, you might find that um, you get, uh, you find that one layout is, you know, is used consistently better than the other one, um, but all the users that you tested also have a lot of touchscreen experience. If you ran the same study with people who haven't worked with a touchscreen, you might get different results. This is confounding because you are probably not, you're probably not aware of that effect. You're just taking your users, you don't think about it, um, but you actually are observing now that the effect that you're seeing is really because of touchscreen experience, something you never measured, you never asked about, you never controlled or, or balanced out. Right? So those are the things that you have to be careful of and uh, that can always happen to you and you have to just think about those things carefully and, and see like what other things could be specific about my user group that I'm studying with or my setting that I'm using that could possibly have an effect and do I need to take measurements against that? All right, so lots of things here. Um, speed and accuracy, those for two, for example, are of course mostly a trade-off, right? So you will often find studies that say, well, this system uh, actually lets you type not quite as fast, but more accurate than, I don't know, typing on a touchscreen of an iPhone or something. Um, the qualitative results can also be along several different axes. You could ask simply for comfort, or for impressions of the device, um, you, might, you might get anecdotes or quotes from people, so you could go for a qualitative uh, result here, but you could also go for a quantitative uh, judgment of, of how satisfied people are. When you get to your dependent variables and you try to define how your experiment is going to run, um, you want to basically end up with an operational definition. The operational definition means that I now have an exact description of what these variables are and how they are being measured in our study. Right? This is the, the tough thing. So let's try this. Let's try to give an operational definition of each of those variables and indicate on which scale it's measured. Um, let's maybe start with the first one, speed. Um, how are we measuring that? Yeah? Time, okay. What does that mean, uh, time? Time until what happens? Yes? Words per minute? Okay, words per minute. Um, any problems about words per minute? Depends on the language. Yeah, language, uh, the selection of words we make people type, it might differ that. But let's say we have both conditions type the same stuff. Is that still a problem? Yeah? Uh-huh. Exactly. So we might be having people type stuff, but uh, for some reason we use a, a body of words that really prefers that one keyboard. And then when people try it out in the real world with like, you know, typical t stuff they type, 
it's something else. Let's say you have them type only perfect English prose sentences, but it really gets used in an IM setting where people use all kinds of special characters and short, uh, shortenings of, of words. It might be different, right? Huh, so characters per minute, yes. But again, the question is, is the value that you're measuring influenced by, uh, you know, does, does the language or the selection of text that you use specifically prefer or, or prioritize or um, make it easier with one keyword or the other? And even when you use characters per minute, let's assume we found a good measurement that, that is not preferring one keyword or the other. The question now is, what do we mean by characters per minute? Are we counting backspaces? What about corrections? Yeah. What is, if I type something and it takes me 10 seconds to type in a sentence, I make three mistakes, I backspace a couple times, how many characters per minute did I type? Do you count the backspaces as characters? They didn't turn into characters. In fact, they removed characters. Did I type more characters because I typed one and then erased it and added it again? Or do we count correct type characters per minute? And if we count correct ones and people finish after 10 seconds and they still have one mistake in there, does that count or is that an invalid measurement? So there's all kinds of messy things here in, the, in this part. Okay? So speed measures, let's look at this more. Um, words per minute. We can say words per minute is simply measured as the length of the transcribed string, which would be the text that you're typing in, um, minus one because you can only begin timing after the first character gets pressed. Right? So that's a good way to start. So you ignore the first one. You don't measure from like a stopwatch starting, but you measure, you start timing when the first character is pressed. And then uh, that gives you a duration in seconds that you divide by. Um, and then you can divide this by five because this is sort of the typical length of a word in English um, in characters using spaces. And that would give you a worst per minute measurement. This is an easy measurement. You just need to watch, right? Very cool. However, it disregards any errors in the final text. So if somebody transcribes something and they've got some mistakes in there, you're not looking at that. An alternative is to insist on the user correcting all errors. But that can take much longer and may be frustrating um, and is not a pure typing speed measurement anymore. Right? Now you're like asking people to correct and read what they're doing. Maybe the way that this thing is displayed, the original text next to the other one, is starting to influence your results. So that's tricky. Um, also, it disregards the process of entering. It doesn't matter how many times you press the backspace key in this one. Right? You just measure when you're done with a string. So this is tricky. Oops, sorry, did I jump something here? Let me see. No, I think we're good. Um, so this was words per minute. Sorry. There we are. So now text entry tasks um, can be of two types. Are we asking people to type something that they make up? Or are we asking them to copy a text that they are supposed to read? If we ask them to make something up, um, you know, that's more realistic. It's like you know, when you type a text message in, in your favorite you know, chat client or IM client. Um, but people might take inconsistent time to think about, what am I going to write? You know, one person's like, oh, I got all these ideas. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Right? So that's, that's problematic. And then also, error identification is difficult because you don't know what they were trying to write. Right? They weren't, they're not following a, a gold standard. Um, transcription means you give people a given text, and that's actually mostly how it's done. So you get a text, you have to type that in. At least we know what is supposed to be there. Um, so this has 
um, you know, excludes any behaviors that compromise measurements, um, like pondering what to write. Uh, it allows you to identify errors because you know the content. Uh, it also allows you to distribute the letters and words to your liking. Question, see whether you guys are still awake. One of these two has higher external validity. The other one has higher internal validity. Which one is which? Yep. I guess the first one is uh, more internal validity, but no. Uh, the second one is internal validity, and the first one is uh, external validity. Exactly. Why? Because in the, when you give a text, um, it is more uncomfortable for a person to write because he doesn't have this information in his brain, but he has to read and It's more relevant to your experiment, but when they, he's typing something from his mind, um, Well, it's not about faster. It, I mean, you're on the right track. But what is it that makes the first one more externally valid and the second one more internally valid? I think the first one's more external because it's more uh, like a real life situation. Right. It says realistic on there, right? So this is kind of giving it away. That, that means external validity is high. And the internal validity is higher in the second one because we're holding things down. There's less random influence from like real life noise in the second one. Okay. You'll still find that a lot of people do the second one because they want to get to results that avoid the problems of, of you know, these, this composition task. So another variant is to say, you know, read and memorize a short sentence before entering it. That reduces the tendency to switch between the displayed text and the text interfield, right? Uh, makes typing faster if they memorized it, but it also takes longer because you have to memorize the text. Plus, you're introducing the problem like maybe people don't memorize it correctly. And so there's another variable. You're testing short-term memory in addition to text entry. So you can see this is all you know, kind of iffy. So here's an example uh, for a basic user interface for, for text entry evaluation. Um, one thing that you can already see here is uh, we're doing a copy task. right? We're giving people the text. We also move the source text really close to the entry text because we don't want people to have to you know, find that part and, and get confused and get lost. Um, also, this reduces the cognitive load of spotting errors. Right? It's actually perfectly aligned. So if I make a mistake, it's pretty easy to see. It also minimizes distraction. So we're not running this inside a you know, full-blown Windows 10 user interface with 20 blinking icons in the taskbar stuff. Right? Um, and it's case insensitive, so we're removing uppercase, lowercase. Again, external validity goes down, but internally it gets easier to control. Right? Now you might wonder, what do we have people type? Turns out, um, back in 2003, people published um, a paper at CHI that had 500 English phrases of moderate length, easy to remember, representative of the English language in terms of letter frequency correlations. So. Um, this is great. It ignores case. Enter, you enter everything in lowercase. The great thing about this publication is this is actually a publication of a data set. Right? Remember, this was one type of contribution. This actually allows replication of other studies. Because right? then you do exactly what you said earlier. Other people uh, may use different uh, data sets. And you know, if there, everybody the community agrees on one data set, at least we can compare our results along that data set. And hopefully, that data set is externally you know, valid, uh, which is what these guys were trying to um, make sure by, by doing all these things here. Um, here are some examples of, of, those, of those sentences in there. Um, 
some researchers from different languages then took that set and said, oh, that's great, we're just going to translate it to our language. But it turns out, when you do that, you end up with the sentences that mean the same in, in the other language, but this was also carefully chosen to match certain letter frequencies. So if you just, just translate it, you lose that. Right? So that's, that's a, a nice little mistake you can make. Um, then we have um, another one that uh, is, has been published at Mobile HCI 2011 that takes 200 sentences extracted from real-world mobile phone text entry. You know, this was done on the BlackBerry QWERTY keyboard. Um, it was tested for memorability and representative character distribution for mobile texting. This actually has better external validity than the first one if you are running a mobile phone text entry study. So here's some examples. You, know, you can see these guys actually did uppercase, lowercase, and they actually had sentences that were more, much more likely um, to actually come up in you know, IMing people. The text composition task, when you have people actually compile stuff. We said it's hard because people need time to think about what they're writing. Error identification is tricky. Um, but it's also been done. So in this uh, journal article, Tokai, you may remember, is this, this uh, Transactions on Computer Human Interaction. This is the, uh, the journal by the ACM on, on HCI. Um, they characterized and fine-tuned text composition tasks with four experiments using Amazon Mechanical Turks. Um, so basically putting these things out there and having people online uh, do the experiment and report back the data. They had a couple different variables. They, uh, they, they used different tasks for just copying, the one that we've already seen, replying to an answer for, uh, to, to, to a text message, or a situational composition, basically you know, telling them you're in this situation, this is what we want you to kind of express, and then they could make up their text, or complete free composition, or aiding a uh, communication, which I think referred to, uh, there was a communication going on, you're supposed to help make people understand what's going on. Um, different variants here, uh, for example, say the intended message before typing could have been an instruction that they gave to people, or don't use slang. So um, they had different variants on how they would uh, ask people to create particular kinds of text composition. The results for this were that composition tasks obviously take longer. They also have more edits than, than the copy tasks, which is kind of what you would expect. Now, ensuring quality and the fact uh, that you're, especially in composition tasks, that you're still doing something that makes sense um, and, and is adequate is hard. Um, so here's a message that you could give to a user and that, you know, that would make a, a decent instruction when you're running this experiment. And I've highlighted stuff in here. I just want to point out all the kinds of things that you need to think about. You need to tell your user when they're doing this experiment so that you nail down some of those you know, floating, possibly confounding variables. Imagine you're using a mobile device and need to write a message. Okay? So you're putting people into a certain situation with the technology. Um, we want you to invent and type a fictitious, fictitious but plausible message. So don't just type blah, 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 blah. It should be something that makes sense. Uh, but you can make it up. Use your imagination. If you're struggling for ideas, think about things you often write about using your own mobile device. So that puts people in the sense, okay, I'm just going to write stuff that I sent to my friends on my own mobile device. Okay? So you've set them into a particular setting, and you're likely to get stuff that is sort of from a similar background. Now it actually goes on. It says, please write complete sentences. So, you know, 
not just IM speak, no, you know, use good grammar and spelling. Do not use texting abbreviations or slang. So that's maybe actually you know, a little confounding or, or you know, a mismatch to the first instruction here. Um, so you're telling people to do this. But if you do this and then you get the results, I think the, the type text examples we saw in the last slide showed that this was the instruction that was given, right? They were complete sentences and uppercase, lowercase, no, no I am speaking there. Identifying errors, of course, is hard, uh, but the way they did this was they took multiple judges that looked at the corresponding uh, that the results uh, or crowdsourcing, so basically doing it online, um, and then identified the, the error score that people gave to it and used the median. The median gets rid of outliers very nicely for fairly um, small numbers. Okay, so this is how people measure this. So to wrap this up, what we've seen is, um, so I'm gonna go back here, uh, is that text composition is a really tricky beast and this is just a, something that sounds quite you know, harmless as, a, as an entry task, pretty well defined. And even with this task as simple as this, you run into all kinds of issues um, trying to do a proper experiment and thinking about what you tell users to do, how you set them up, whether they invent stuff, whether they copy stuff, etc. This content was provided by RWTH, Aachen University.